This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with clinical psychologist Dr. Youssef Alami. Based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Dr. Alami treats people with various addictions, including alcohol, drug use, and gambling. He's the founder of Ally Addiction Consulting and an advisor for various organizations that aim to reduce the harm of substances or risky behaviors. Youssef Alami joins me today from Montreal. Welcome to the Life Speak podcast. Hello, Marianne. Thanks for having me. I want to start with this. At what point is a behavior considered an addiction? The basic idea is that we need to see it on a certain spectrum. So basically, whether it's uh, having a drink, whether it's engaging in gambling behavior, there are less risky ways of engaging in such behaviors. But then once you start to feel that uh, you are trying to cut down in your consumption, your gambling behavior, but you have a lot of difficulty, even though you are actually trying to, and that eventually brings out negative consequences, whether it is uh, in your personal life, uh, related to your work, related to your family, related to uh, your, your involvement in various hobbies, when there starts to be a sort of uh, tunnel vision that, that becomes constantly directed in the addictive behavior, well, that's when you, uh, the red flags are, are starting to be raised and uh, to make us realize that, hmm, something might actually be going uh, in the wrong direction. So how would you maybe recognize that in yourself? Let's say I'm spending the day at work and I know that tomorrow morning I have a particularly important meeting. So I'm telling myself, you know, Yousef, tonight when you go home, just make sure to rest and avoid any drinks and uh, don't spend too much time uh, on your computer because you need to be well rested for tomorrow. So even though I make that decision at, let's say, 10 in the morning, and I find myself around noon, around 1 p.m., starting to think, well, maybe one drink wouldn't be so bad. And then once the end of the workday comes around 4.35-ish, well, I'm starting to plan how on my way home I could eventually maybe stop to the liquor store or something. Well, that's the first clue that even though my initial uh, will or goal was to not consume, well, throughout the day, it's like if my mind through various conditioning processes is starting to slowly trick me into getting more and more involved in that behavior, even though I would have rather not get involved in it. So you say have one drink. So somebody comes home from work. They've said they're not going to have a drink. They decide to stop and pick up a bottle of wine or whatever. And then they have one drink. So one drink. Let's put things into perspective. So in Canada, we have these uh, low-risk drinking uh, guidelines where we say that for people of male biological sex, can drink up to three drinks per day, and people of the female biological sex can drink up to two drinks per day with a maximum of 15 and 10 drinks per week, respectively. So technically, as long as you stay below these guidelines, then your uh, risk of developing various issues, whether it's health, whether it's uh, physical health, mental health, or uh, getting into uh, domestic violence issues and such, are relatively low. So one drink wouldn't be the issue here. But the thing to keep in mind is that 
even though you're only having one drink, one should always try to at least have one or two days without any single drink to be able to not make it a habit. And what do you think about those guidelines? The way that they were uh, developed is that they were constructed in such a way that when you compare people who have never had a drink in their life, so what we call lifetime abstainers, so it's not just people who right now aren't uh, drinking or who are former drinkers who might have stopped uh, drinking for health issues or something else. Well, when you compare lifetime abstainers to people who drink two or three drinks per day on average, well, it turns out that they have the same risk. So drinking two to three drinks per day does not make you at an increased risk compared to someone who hasn't had a drink in their life. And when looked at in that uh, perspective, I find that it's a nice balance between allowing people to enjoy a drink in various circumstances, whether it's uh, accompanying uh, a meal and the idea that I still want to take care of my physical and mental health. What do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of addiction? Depending on who you talk to, you have either people who say, well, you know, it's uh, purely uh, biological uh, disease and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. So the only solution is to avoid all consumption altogether. And then on the other spectrum, you have people who say, well, it's purely your fault. Look at uh, John who was able to stop. Uh, why aren't you stopping? So basically, if you're not stopping, it's because you don't necessarily uh, want it enough or you don't have enough uh, volition to be able to stop. Willpower. Yes, willpower. Thank you very much. So the idea is that whether you're in one end of the spectrum or the other, both are actually uh, very misleading and not at all representative of reality because probably won't come as a surprise, but the truth lies right in between. And even uh, genetic studies have shown us that even though you, you, you might have uh, genetic vulnerability, well, that only accounts for 50% of the risk of developing an addiction. So even if your whole family has uh, a history of uh, drug or alcohol abuse, sure, you might be at an increased risk, but you would still have a certain room for uh, maneuvering in, in order to avoid falling into the trap of addiction. And on the other hand, even if you do not have any biological predisposition, well, certain types of behaviors or other me mental health disorders that might uh, stem, for example, from uh, neglect, abuse, or other forms of trauma could lead you to develop an addiction. When you talk about biological, you're talking about a parent or an immediate family member, right? Who... Exactly. For a, a hereditary uh, reason. A few weeks into the pandemic, and this was back in 2020, the World Health Organization warned that alcohol use during this time may potentially exacerbate health conditions and risk-taking behaviors. Have you seen this in your own clinical practice? Well, what stood out the most in uh, my practice is that people who were on a great road to recovery, who had been abstinent for maybe a month or two because that's what they were trying to reach, and they started developing various hobbies on Mondays, on Wednesdays, on Fridays that weren't necessarily related to uh, alcohol consum consumption, for example. Well, as soon as lockdown happened, 
A week later, not even, there was widespread relapse in these people who were in the midst of their recovery process. And then on another side of things, we had people who didn't necessarily have extremely problematic drug or alcohol use behaviors, but they benefited from a certain social structure, whether it be around work, uh, having to leave home, go to work from nine to five, talk to people, meet uh, people that provided a sort of protective mechanism against slipping towards the excessive alcohol use side of the spectrum. And once you removed all of that, well, that's when things started to become extremely difficult and many started actually seeking help at that particular moment. Do you think that the pandemic and the restrictions around that led to people who maybe had no issue with the drink before to develop a drinking problem or a drug problem? The way that I, that I understand it is that if we really had someone who had literally no issue with an alcohol or drug problem, the pandemic in and of itself or the, the whole lockdown and the whole uh, measures that were put into place wouldn't be enough to trigger such an addictive issue because for one addiction doesn't happen overnight it's something that slowly builds up through on one hand learned behaviors on the other hand uh, social influences again if someone had already uh, various vulnerabilities whether it be mental health or something else then it's possible that those would have exacerbated a pre-existing consumption pattern that maybe was less risky because of these various protective factors, but it's not if someone had actually absolutely no risk that suddenly all these measures would have made addiction suddenly appear. You talk about mental health, and I wanted to ask, is addiction a mental health disorder? For one, uh, there's the, uh, the famous uh, DSM, the Diagnostic Manual of uh, Statistical and, manual, uh, and uh, Mental uh, Disorders, and Addiction is classified into that. Therefore, it's important to recognize that mental health issues are a big part addiction issues. But at the same time, addiction can also be a physical disorder, especially when we talk about tolerance or dependence, such as what can be observed with, for example, uh, opiate uh, use, when your body starts to physically need the substance in order to function. And if you don't, well, you have overwhelming pain and inability to get out of bed. At that moment, we're mostly talking about a physical issue rather than a mental health issue. But once again, it is possible that what preceded, what predisposed the person to eventually develop such an addiction would be more on the mental health side, the mental health or social side. How did you come to make addiction the focus of your work? That actually started out during my uh, PhD when I found a great supervisor who had uh, uh, suggested a few uh, topics to use as my dissertation. And one of those was uh, identify personality risk factors, personality profiles that could lead to a gambling disorder. And I looked at the topic and I was like, hmm, I know many people around me that gamble. I know some who gamble without any issues. I, I have actually gambled uh, myself on varying occasions. 
And I've started to wonder, well, if it's possible to be able to study something scientifically and read papers and papers on statistics on what could for uh, some other people seem very dry content, when it's something that I feel like I can apply to my immediate environment and what we see, whether it's in gambling, whether it's in alcohol use, well, the vast majority of the population engages in these behaviors. So I feel that I'm constantly surrounded by things that I'm also trying to understand and to unmesh in terms of what leads to developing these types of issues with the ultimate goal of finding let's say, the right conditions that would allow people to enjoy these different behaviors or, or substances without falling into the addictive trap. Have you been faced with addiction in your own life at all? So when I was younger, uh, when I was a teen, so even though now, uh, nowadays uh, we haven't yet recognized internet addiction as an addiction, well, there's more and more uh, studies that are... Uh, coming out, they're uh, coming to support this issue. But as a teen, having uh, just uh, moved, uh, changed countries, uh, lack of social uh, support, a circle of friends, it was very easy to seek comfort in front of my computer, whether it was uh, in terms of gaming, whether in, in terms of programming various things. But once you actually realize that you're spending 10 hours per day, even on a weekday, when you have school the next morning and you basically sleep and you go uh, to school the next day, not completely functional. And you see that all it does is create more and more isolation and that it becomes unconceivable to be able to get out of that circle. Well, that's something that unfortunately many people with addictions, uh, go through. And I was uh, fortunate enough to seek uh, psychological help when I was fairly young. And that allowed me to not only, I think, get out of that uh, circle, but also gain a certain uh, perspective on what actually happens when you're inside of that circle. And that once you actually get out of it, how things suddenly seem much more distant. Uh, what do you think helped? I think a major or a central point that helped me was the simple fact that I was able to develop a trusting and nurturing relationship with a therapist that eventually was able to help me find my own strengths that encouraged me to use those strengths to get involved in uh, more and more uh, projects, whether they be hobbies, whether they be more uh, professional. And eventually through these various involvements that slowly opened up my social circle, I think allowed me to build a certain sense of uh, self-worth, not only in terms of my personal esteem, but also in terms of what I feel I could contribute to society. And this is in drastic opposition with that feeling of loneliness and isolation that one feels when they are completely inside of their addictive circle. Do you have any advice for, for parents who are listening who or maybe concerned about their own teens or young adults who might be in the middle of this, what you've experienced yourself? Depending on, let's say, the development, developmental stage of uh, the teen and depending on the type of relationship that each parent m might have uh, with their teen, it's possible that they might not be the best person to provide 
the social support or the mental support that the team may need. So, for, for example, a close friend, an aunt, an uncle could probably be more appropriate in that particular uh, moment to seek a connection and allow their child to slowly envision an alternative to their risky behaviors. And for, for example, a parent that would have certain worries related, for example, their child's alcohol consumption, well, what studies have shown us is that, well, it's way better for a teen to engage in alcohol consumption with their parents that, rather than with their friends without any parental supervision. So the idea behind that is that do not necessarily encourage your children to have a drink with you, but if you sense that they start to express an interest on these various substances, well, the idea would be to do it in a, in a secure, in a healthy, in a less risky manner. And a less risky manner would be, for, for example, having a drink with a meal to express the idea that a drink is, is not necessarily there to make one drunk. A drink is here to accompany a pleasant social experience and may even improve a culinary experience. And therefore, the whole relationship that one may eventually develop with such substances may be more uh, healthy and eventually not be used as a coping mechanism, for example, for either uh, anxiety disorders or social anxiety or even uh, depressive states. I, I think there's probably some parents listening who might be sort of <laughs> aghast right now because, you know, most parents, many parents, I'm sure, think abstain, abstain, mm-hmm. you just you teach your children to abstain, but you're actually saying that's not the way to go. I, I wonder if that also applies to cannabis use or gaming. Is that something you would do with your children if, of course, it's legal? where you live? With the research that currently exists, we don't have uh, as much data to support uh, similar behaviors with cannabis. But if you would ask me personally what I feel I would do, that is a way of looking at things that I would prioritize in the sense that when you're a teen, whether it's with your parents, whether it's not with your parents, you'll find a way to do what you feel like doing, especially if people around you have the opportunity to introduce you to such behaviors. And generally speaking, when these risky behaviors, whether it's cannabis use, whether it's gambling, whether it's uh, engaging in certain types of uh, video games, well, when introduced by the peer group who are other Adolescents who have their own, uh, let's say, uh, issues uh, with whether it's self-control, whether it's respecting limits, it sort of models a risky form of behavior that one may eventually try to integrate into, into their own habits. So what I would feel more comfortable doing would be to actually expose, maybe even if, let's say, I don't smoke any cannabis, but I feel that my child wants to, well, I would maybe ask a friend who does and ask them to uh, maybe introduce uh, my child and I would assist to that smoking session and uh, eventually discuss it after the fact, see with them what they enjoyed, what they did not enjoy. The idea is that it's better to be exposed 
through the parents than through the peer group. But I must still insist on the fact that the ideal for a child is to start as late as possible. Why? Because many studies have shown that early drug and alcohol use affects how the brain develops, especially in regions involved in memory, involved in self-control, involved in planning. So the, most of these functions fall into what we psychologists call the ex uh, executive uh, functioning. So it's basically all sorts of uh, mental uh, capacities that we generally use to plan ahead and to structure our life in order to reach our goals. So when someone starts young, it negatively affects the brain and therefore the ultimate goal is to start as late as possible, considering that the brain continues to mature until around the age of 25. But if you sense that your child is starting to express an interest and that they might eventually try it elsewhere if it's not with you, well, it's best for them to try it with you. It sounds like what you're saying is, is that the thoughts have changed a lot since, say, a generation ago or even when, when I was a teenager where it was very much drinking and perhaps engaging in drug use was a thrill-seeking behavior. But what you're advising is that if parents kind of bring it not, not necessarily to normalize it, but, but have it be something that's more talked about in a safe space, then it becomes less maybe appealing to go off and do in a, in a risky situation that could potentially be out of control. Absolutely. And especially when we look at developmental curves of risky behavior in adolescence, there's a uh, concept which was adolescence limited del delinquency. So it's basically this idea that even with people who aren't necessarily delinquent, well, we observe a peak around the ages of 15 to 17. So if something feels dangerous or I'm not supposed to, well, teens have this tendency to try these things, even though they wouldn't be recommended. I want to talk a little bit about language. The language that we use around addiction seems to have shifted and evolved recently. How important is language in terms of people seeking help and, and the stigma around addiction? Yeah, that's a great question because that comes back to what we were saying earlier about uh, some people who feel that if you're uh, someone who has uh, addiction issues, well, you will have them for the rest of your life. That comes with the terms that we decide to use. If I call someone an addict, well, I'm using a nice big sticker or label that I'm putting right on their forehead, and this is an addict. And the first thing you think about when you think of an addict is probably not your uh, family parent who goes to work nine to five. Generally speaking, when we think of an addict, we're probably thinking about someone who lives in the streets, who doesn't look very clean, who uh, is probably uh, very violent, who is probably not the most respectable person in terms of society, but addiction is much more widespread than people, for example, who live in such conditions. And therefore, if society as a whole, if papers that are published, if newspaper articles keep using the term of someone being an addict, well, people less and less want to identify with that particular label. So if, let's say... I'm questioning my alcohol behavior. 
but I'm not an addict. I'm someone who works. I'm someone who uh, has uh, a significant relationship. So I'm not an addict. Therefore, if I'm not an addict, should I actually seek help? So if there is this whole uh, connotation associated with the word addict, not only it could prevent certain people from identifying with uh, their consumption issues and therefore seeking help, but at the same time for the people who provide the treatment. If a treatment provider says, yeah, well, I work uh, with an addict, oh, uh, that person's an addict, okay, well, what are you trying to do with them? If they're an addict, it's basically part of their personality, the way that you're you're describing it. And therefore, is it even worth doing what you're doing with them? And if you reach a point where there's a, for example, a situation of relapse, which is much more common than one would think in a treatment process, well, if a treatment provider sees relapse, oh, well, it's normal because they're an addict. Well, not only the treatment provider loses uh, their sense of control and the help that they can provide, but it could also uh, cause significant breaks in the therapeutic alliance that you could create with uh, your patient. So what, what language should we be using instead? Generally speaking, we, we want to go with person-centered language. So the idea is that, let's say I uh, drink too much alcohol and I uh, don't go to work. I have a substance use disorder related to alcohol. Well, I'm not an alcoholic. I am a person with alcohol problems. Or I am uh, Yusuf with a uh, severe alcohol use disorder. It's a pattern of behavior that is considered to be external to me, but associated with me. And once it is external to me, then I'm more able to actually work on it, see it from an an external point of view, analyze that behavior, and question it more in terms of, uh, hmm, so this thing that I tend to do, what let me to act that certain way in that particular moment. In a position too, well, I'm an alcoholic, therefore uh, I feel shame and I feel guilt over all the behavior and the negative consequences that I am causing to the people around me. Another word that I'm he- hearing uh, used a lot or another term is harm reduction. What is harm reduction? Harm reduction uh, followed uh, the abstinence and the temperance movements in the early 20th century And what researchers, clinicians, and society as a whole start to observe is that when we try to prohibit a behavior, well, for one, people do it secretly. And for two, people who aren't necessarily ready to stop completely that behavior do not seek help. Therefore, in a mindset where we try to minimize not only the costs to the individual, but their surroundings and to society as a whole, harm reduction appeared as this approach of taking the person where they are at that particular moment in their treatment uh, phase and offer the best service that they are able to receive. And when I say able to receive, it's mentally able to receive or physically able to receive at that particular moment. So for for example, suppose you have someone with a severe opiate use disorder. If we're going for an abstinence uh, perspective, well, we we want to tell that person, well, you must stop 
uh, completely tonight, never take another uh, dose of heroin or else uh, I'm not going to offer you any treatment. Okay, sure. So the person does that. The next day, uh, they start to feel severe physical pain. They might feel the, the feeling that they m will never be able to get out of this particular situation. And that might eventually put them at risk of possibly suicidal behaviors. Whereas if we go through, for example, opiate replacement therapy, where you actually provide the person who has a her heroin use disorder with opiates, but at a less intense dosage, and you slowly help them recover from that uh, physical addiction that they're having, well, you're basically engaging in harm reduction because you're saying, I'm not against the idea that you keep using the drug that is causing you a problem, but we're just trying to find a way for you to be able to take it in order to eventually have the least negative consequences for yourself and for your environment. I want to talk a bit about gambling. You do a lot of work with people who engage in, in risky gambling habits. Here in the province of Ontario, where, where I'm based, they've recently regulated online gambling. So people can pretty much gamble anytime, no matter where they are. Um, and it's become very, very easy to access. What impact has that had on your clients? That is one of the most frustrating things that I was... Uh unlucky to witness during my clinical work, but it's basically this idea that people who have been hardworking through their recovery eventually find themselves triggered 24-7 by sports gambling ads. As soon as they want to watch hockey, for example, when the Stanley Cup playoffs happened, uh, every single time there is a mad break, we were bombarded with advertisements of sports gambling. And that was a huge issue for people who are trying to limit their exposure to triggers. And that eventually led them to get slowly more and more involved. And there's a lot of frustrating ways that the advertisements are construed that try to show that gambling is something you do socially, you do fun and uh, things like that. But the reality is that people who watch these hockey games are often alone at home and they do not have the same experience as what, as what is portrayed in those advertisements. But that is somewhat what they are trying to seek and eventually has caused multiple, multiple situations of relapse. Let's talk about uh, treatment for a moment. I think most of us have heard of Alcoholics Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous, but those are not the only options available to people who uh, have a problem. What other treatment options are, are available? Depending on uh, the severity of uh, the issue, many uh, social services across the province offer, for one, various uh, self help educational resources to be able to better understand these type of behaviors, for one. For two, um, for less severe, again, issues, uh, there are lots of uh, um, group sessions that aren't necessarily aimed at stopping the behavior, but mostly at uh, gaining a better understanding through mutual experiences that are shared, through uh, stories, through uh, 
case studies that illustrate how different types of substances, different types of behaviors may affect one's life. And the whole goal is to help one question the impact that their consumption has on their personal life to eventually allow them to take the decision to either pursue or reduce or completely stop. And then finally, there are the um, more intensive treatment services, such as those that I personally work at. And even in these treatment services, not every person that I see has the goal of being abstinent, whether it's for alcohol, drug, or gambling behaviors. And the idea is that a person comes, we assess the situation, we assess the, the severity of the impacts on various spheres of the person's life, and eventually the first session always ends with, all right, so what do you want to focus on? It's not a prescribed treatment to the person. It's basically, okay, you come to see me because you feel that something might be wrong. After our initial assessment, this is what I'm suggesting might be possible paths that we could try to explore together. And then uh, the person decides for themselves which path they want to explore and what would their uh, consumption goals be, whether it's completely uh, complete abstinence, which is also a legitimate goal, or uh, simply, for example, only uh, uh, light drinks on the weekend, or, which might seem uh, contrary to, uh, to expectations, light drinks during the week and nothing in the weekend, because the person knows that it's impossible for them to drink light in the weekend, but they still want to enjoy the glass of wine with their weekly meal. So what you're saying is that it is possible to have a healthy relationship with gambling, with alcohol, with drugs, without abstaining completely if you have at a certain point overindulged. Exactly. And that starts with having a healthy relationship with oneself. The idea being, once we understand our personal functioning, our coping mechanisms in terms of how we deal with anxiety, with depression, with uh events that trigger personal trauma, how we deal with conflict in our relationships, once we gain a better understanding of how we tend to function and what our usual coping mechanisms are, and we break the link between that coping mechanism and substance use, well, at that moment, one could become more uh, open, more uh, receptive to having a healthy relationship with uh, alcohol, drugs, or uh, uh, gambling behavior. Can one ever be cured of an addiction? So this is a delicate topic because for many people, the belief that they cannot be cured has helped them reduce the harm associated with alcohol use, for example. So this is, uh, for example, a mentality that we hear about a lot in the Alcoholic Anonymous movement. And some people who believe that they cannot be cured, that belief helps them abstain completely and allows them, therefore, to function in society. The way that, more generally speaking, and when I say generally, because, of course, every individual story will be unique, but more generally speaking, not everyone who has an addiction will necessarily live with that addiction the rest of their life. So said otherwise, yes, some people can be cured from their addiction because they will 
have been able to address the underlying issues and develop the appropriate uh, protective factors and coping mechanisms to allow them to navigate through life's stressors in other ways than using certain drugs or, or alcohol. You work in an intense and emotional uh, industry. <laughs> this has been a very emotionally intense couple of years. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? In the last uh, couple of weeks, I actually uh, finished treatment with a couple of patients who are happy to have uh, attained their uh, treatment goals. And one thing that stood out was when some people have told me, you know, you said through this whole mess of COVID, of uh, uncertainty, of not knowing what will happen, not only in my personal life, in my professional life, in my relationships, well, I knew that every two weeks I had my appointment with you and you were this pillar of stability, allowing me to navigate through these extremely difficult times and being able to, at the same time, maintain a certain distance with the risk of making the addictive issue become worse with this mindset of, I'm just going to meet you where you are and we'll go from there has allowed a lot of uh, my patients to navigate through these tough times, all the while avoiding dramatic or extremely negative consequences that might have stemmed from their uh, substance use. So basically the idea is that when I see the need that many of my patients have and that I am capable of responding to a certain need, I feel extremely grateful to be able to play that role and help my patients overcome their, their personal issues. That must feel very impactful. Absolutely. Not only impactful in the sense that I'm proud of the work that I do, but also, as I mentioned uh, earlier, when I was younger, I had my own uh, personal issues. And it's uh, basically psychotherapy that has helped me be where I am today. And when I look at the fact that one person has helped me overcome many of my issues and that I, I am now able to multiply this effect through all the people that I am seeing and helping, that makes me every single morning so happy to step foot in my office to, to hear all the difficult and happy stories that my patients have to share. Dr. Yusuf Alami, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Marianne, for having me. This was really fun. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.